A marriage might be seen as a simple equation of love plus time. But every union has its X factor, like lust or kids or spouses from alternate dimensions. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Join me for stories with more complex equations, something like matrimony times mischief squared. Stay with us. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Romantic comedies and bridal magazines make marriage look pretty romantic. Meet cute when you get into an argument online at the DMV, iron out your quirky little differences, say I do, dance the night away, and live happily ever after. But if you're currently thinking about marriage, might I suggest shelving Sleepless in Seattle and the latest issue of Matrimony Monthly? They're both highly entertaining, of course. But if you really want a deep dive into marriage, why not go buy some longtime husband or wife a drink instead? Two Chardonnays in, they'll start to tell you the truth. Actually, I'll tell you the truth with zero Chardonnays. Marriages work. Real emotional labor, plus commitment, compromise, and accepting the fact that your partner eats corn on the cob in a painfully deliberate way that you managed not to notice before year five, when you both went to that corn festival in Iowa, and all hell broke loose. Cute talk about getting hitched and having someone attach tin cans to the back of your car are far from the reality of yoking yourself to another human being for the rest of your life. That's right, the rest of your life. And you only get the one life, may I remind you. Of course, there are huge benefits to a partnership, some spiritual and some involving tax breaks. But if you're making an effort in good faith, staying together over the long term is a challenge. At the time of this recording, I have been married for nearly 33 years. Even saying that makes me feel a little dizzy, especially considering the fact that I feel like my actual age is 26. You have your own version of that, right? The age you actually feel? So a 26-year-old having been married for nearly 33 years is a math problem that no one can solve. It's like Fermat's theorem, but totally pointless. Yet I have really been married for that long. And we are happy. I don't know the secret, except it might have something to do with the fact that when my husband and I go to a cocktail party and meet someone new, and the person asks us how we met or how old our kids are, Either one of us is free to abruptly turn around and join a more interesting conversation, by which I mean the secret is that we try not to bore each other. Instead, we prefer to bore other people. Now that's marriage. Today on Selected Shorts, we hear stories about marriages that outlive the romance. Our protagonists do their best to evaluate successes and failures, deciding whether to hunker down together or to cut ties and run. In one story, a man finds out what life would be like with a partner from an alternate reality. In a second, a bored husband watches people from his balcony until an unusual pedestrian bursts his bubble. And in a third, an old college buddy with a new cult works to seduce an entire family. Our first story about life long after the wedding is by Edgar Carrot. He's a writer with a fantastical bent, which he puts to good use in story collections including Suddenly, A Knock on the Door, and Fly Already. While this story may feel more like an otherworldly courtship tale, wait for it, there's a bittersweet twist at the end. 
Performing the story is an actor who reads often at shorts, Kate Donovan. His credits include The Man in the High Castle, Damages, and MacGyver. He's also brought life to animated characters such as Hercules. Now here he is performing A World Without Selfie Sticks by Edgar Carrot. A world without selfie sticks. In retrospect, I shouldn't have yelled at not Debbie. Debbie herself always said that yelling doesn't solve anything. But what is a person supposed to do when a week after saying a tearful goodbye at an airport to his girlfriend, who was flying to Australia to do her doctorate, he bumps into her at an East Village Starbucks? There she was, large as life, harassing the barista with questions about their milk substitutes. And when I asked her how she could come back to New York without even letting me know, she just gave me this cold look and said impatiently, Mr. I don't know who you are. You must have me mixed up with someone else. That's when I I lost it. After almost three years together, I'd hoped for more civil treatment. So when she said she didn't know me, instead of arguing, I I stood in the middle of Starbucks and yelled out all the intimate details I knew about her, including the scar on her back from when she fell on our trip to Yosemite and the hairy mole on her left armpit. (laughs) Not Debbie, didn't reply. She just gave me a shocked look as two cafe employees pushed me out. I sat on a bench in the street and started to cry. Five weeks earlier, when Debbie told me she was moving to Australia, I'd been devastated, but I understood that the split was inevitable. Sydney University had offered her a doctoral grant, and I had just been appointed the head of a team at one of the hottest big data startups in the country. And honestly, though the separation was painful, it wasn't cruel or humiliating like the frigid encounter in Starbucks. Suddenly, I felt a gentle touch on my shoulder, and when I looked up, I saw not Debbie standing next to me. Let's be clear, she whispered. I might look like her with the mole and all, but I'm not her, really. Not Debbie and I moved to another cafe on Third Avenue. She ordered a weak cappuccino with a lot of foam, just like Debbie used to. She gave me a searching look, also familiar to me, and began telling me the craziest story I had ever heard. It seemed that not Debbie was also named Deborah, (laughs) but she hadn't come to New York that morning from Australia. She'd come from a parallel world. I'm not kidding. That's what she said between sips of her weak cappuccino. She wasn't part of an alien invasion or uh, the result of a scientific military experiment gone wrong. She was here as a contestant on a TV game show called Viva la Difference, the top-rated program in the alternate universe she'd come from. Five participants on the show were sent to a universe that contains everything they have in their own world except for one thing, and that's what it's all about figuring out that one thing which exists in their world, but not in the one that they've been sent to. 
The contestants are filmed 24-7, each have their own special channel, and the first one to discover what the missing item is and says it out loud is instantly returned to the TV studio in their world where they came from, to the cheers of the audience and a million-dollar prize. And to raise the stakes, while the winner celebrates, the rest of the contestants have to live the rest of their lives in the alternate universe they've been sent to never really knowing if they've lost the game or if it's still on. This sounded to me like a hell of a price to pay for losers. But Debbie said it didn't bother her at all because her ex was a real asshole and <laughs> she hadn't spoken to her parents in years. It all felt too incredible to be a lie and not Debbie spoke with such sincerity. I just had to believe her. Last season's winner, she said, was from Ghana, who discovered that the missing item in the alternate world the contestants had been sent to was a selfie stick. A fucking selfie stick, can you believe it, not Debbie said? I would never have managed to figure it out. I asked her a few more questions. It turned out that, like Debbie, not Debbie had studied clinical psychology, but she wasn't interested in being a therapist or getting a doctorate, which is why she now found herself stuck in an administrative job in some rich college in her alternative universe's upstate New York. I told her about my split from Debbie, about how I'd gone to the airport with her the week before and didn't leave the terminal until I saw her plane take off for Australia. She nodded and said, yeah, that made sense. Contestants are never sent to the hemisphere where their parallels live, and if Debbie hadn't flown to Sydney, then she probably would have ended up in Buenos Aires or Auckland. I'm glad she left, she said, giving me a smile that made me fall in love with Debbie two and a half years ago. With all due respect to Auckland, nothing beats New York. When we finished our coffee, not Debbie insisted on paying, and, and right before we were about to go our separate ways, I offered to help her win the prize on the show in order to find what her world had that ours didn't. Not Debbie had to be exposed to as much information as possible, as quickly as possible, and I, as a computer person with expertise in databases, could help. When I saw her hesitate, I backtracked quickly and said, you know, if helping her or using computers was against the rules of the program, but Not Debbie smiled and interrupted me. No, it's not that, she said. It's just, I don't want to drag you into this whole complicated business. It's not like I'm just a girl you never met before. Well, I explained that there was nothing complicated about it. Even though I'd been with Debbie for two and a half years, she was not Debbie, and uh, we just met today. And if it's okay, I'd be glad to help her look for the missing thing. And who knows, maybe in the process, I'd become a TV star in an alternate universe. At four in the morning, after nine straight hours of searching the technological, geographic, and culinary databases, would you believe that in the first season, the parallel world was a world without maple syrup? Not Debbie said she couldn't keep her eyes open anymore. I changed the sheets on the bed in my small studio apartment for her, and she fell asleep instantly. I sat and watched Not Debbie sleep. It was weird, but I felt that in those nine hours, I'd learned more about her than I'd ever known about my Debbie in the entire two-and-something years we lived together. The 
possibilities she raised in our search for the missing element revealed so much about her dreams, her desires, her fears. It wasn't that she didn't resemble Debbie, but there was also something about her. She was open and brave, mesmerizing and wild. Really, I don't know what to call it when it happens with someone who is both your ex and someone you've never met, but I fell in love. And while not Debbie slept in my apartment, so close I could smell her shampoo, I pictured the other four contestants on the show still searching for flying cats, electric ear cleaners, or eyebrow deodorants, or whatever it was that was missing in this imperfect world. And I knew that all it took for Not Debbie to stay here with me forever was for one of them to find it. I closed my eyes. When Not Debbie woke me up at one in the afternoon, she seemed a little slower. She told me it had taken an average of 15 hours for previous season winners to find the missing element, and she'd been searching for more than a day already. That's it, she said. One of the others must have found it already. I tried to reassure her. After all, there's no way of knowing. Maybe they were baffled, wandering around Manhattan or wherever they'd been sent, and she could still win. Maybe, not Debbie said, suddenly smiling. But the truth is that from the minute I went on the program, I've been fantasizing about losing and starting a new life in this world, a better, less painful life than the one I had back home. I didn't say anything, and she looked at me softly, unlike Debbie had ever looked at me. Honestly, she said, and she touched my face with the back of her hand, who cares what's missing in the world? You're here. In bed, when I asked her if she was on birth control, she shook her head and said with a smile she really hoped that of all the possible parallel worlds, she hadn't landed in the one without condoms. It was a joke, but when she said it, I could see her hesitate a second out of fear that maybe it was actually true and that saying it out loud would return her to the world and separate us forever. After uh, we had sex, when I suggested that we check out the astronomy, geopolitical, and history databases, she said she'd rather have sex again. <laughs> Later, we went out for a walk in Central Park and ate hot dogs. Not Debbie told me that in her world, she's a vegetarian for reasons of conscience, but she feels that here in this world, which isn't her own, it's okay for her to eat a hot dog. I don't want to win, she said as we stood by the reservoir. I don't want to go back. I want to be here with you. We spent the rest of the day in the city showing each other our favorite places in Manhattan, and that's how we arrived at Trinity Church. It was already evening, and the illuminated church looked enchanted, more like a palace in a Disney movie than a real place. I told her that I had passed by it 10 years ago. I had just arrived in the city, and when I saw it, I swore that if I ever got married, I'd do it there. Not Debbie laughed and said, being sure about the church was good, now all I had to do was find a girl who would agree to marry me in it. 
I smiled too, and right after we kissed, Not Debbie said, let's go inside. I'm dying to see the place where we're getting married. The church was fairly empty, and from the minute we walked in, Not Debbie kept looking around uneasily as if she was searching for something. I asked her if everything was all right, and she said, yeah, she was just looking for something. When I asked her what, she looked at me as if I was an idiot and said, God, this is a church, right? I nodded, and she said, so he'll probably be back in a minute. I said that I personally didn't believe in God, but even the people who do say you can't see him. Not Debbie shook her head slowly and said, wow, that's it. In your world, there are churches and mosques and synagogues exactly like in mine, only there's not really a God in it. Don't you get it? It's a world without God. She didn't manage to finish that sentence, at least not in my world. Six years have passed since then, and I still try to imagine what happened to Not Debbie, how she arrived at the flashy studio and was welcomed with cheers from the audience and compliments from a pair of sleek presenters who told her she'd won a million dollars. Sometimes when I imagine it, she's happy and tears of joy run down her face, but most of the time, she's sad, searching the studio, looking for and not finding me. My heart might want to picture her happy, but my ego, my ego insists on believing that the day we spent together was as meaningful to her as it was to me. Less than a year after she slipped through my fingers, I married Debbie in Trinity Church. Life in Sydney wasn't for her, and two months after she returned to the city, we made a spur-of-the-moment decision to get married. Sex with her, by the way, is never as spectacular as it was with not Debbie. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's pleasant enough and familiar, and we have two adorable, beautiful children, Zach and Deborah Jr., <laughs> who will have to learn to live, as we did, in a godless world. That was Tate Donovan with Edgar Carrot's story, A World Without Selfie Sticks. And you know, I think I'd be okay in a world without selfie sticks, or selfies, or sticks. Except when you're around a campfire and you want to make s'mores, then you really want those sticks. But as far as alternate realities go, it'd be really tough to commit. It might be worth hanging tough with our imperfect spouses in a world where I know for a fact that air conditioning exists. Our next story is by Javier Marias. Marias is the celebrated Spanish author of novels including A Heart So White and The Infatuations, as well as three short story collections. This story seems to be about one quiet, fleeting instant in the life of a married couple, but moment by moment, it becomes something much different. Reading it is Ivan Hernandez, an actor who has appeared on Broadway in Dear Evan Hansen and in series including Devious Maids and the Sex and the City sister series and Just Like That. Now here's Ivan Hernandez with On the Honeymoon by Javier Marias. 
This is on the honeymoon. My wife had suddenly felt ill, and we had rushed back to our hotel room where she had lain down, shivering and feeling slightly nauseous and feverish. We didn't want to call a doctor immediately in case it passed off in its own accord and because we were on our honeymoon. And on your honeymoon, you really don't want the interference of a stranger. Even if it's for a medical examination, it was probably a minor stomach upset, colic or something. We were in Seville, in a hotel sheltered from the traffic by an esplanade that separated it from the street. While my wife was sleeping, she seemed to fall asleep as soon as I had undressed her and covered her up, I decided to keep quiet. And the best way to do that and not be tempted to make any noise or to talk to her out of sheer boredom was to go over to the balcony and to watch the people passing by, the people of Seville. How they walked, how they dressed, how they talked, even though, given the relative distance of the street and the traffic, you could hear only a murmur. I looked, without seeing, like someone who arrives at a party from which he knows the only person who really interests him will be absent, having stayed at home with her husband. That one person was with me, behind me, watched over by her husband. I was looking outside, but thinking about what was happening inside. However, I did suddenly pick out one person, and I picked her out because, unlike the other people who walked by and then disappeared, that person remained motionless in one place. It was a woman who, from a distance, looked about 30 and was wearing an almost sleeveless blue blouse, a white skirt, and white high heels. She was waiting for someone, her attitude unmistakably that of someone waiting because every now and then she would take two or three steps to the right or the left, and on the last step she would drag the stiletto heel of one foot or the other, a gesture of suppressed impatience. On her arm she carried a large handbag like the bags that mothers, my mother carried when I was a child. A large black handbag carried on the arm, not slung over the shoulder the way women wear them now. She had strong legs that dug solidly into the pavement each time she returned to the spot where she had chosen to wait after that minimal movement to either side of two or three steps, dragging her heel on the final step. Her legs were so strong that they canceled out or assimilated her high heels. It was her legs that dug into the pavement like a knife into wet wood. Sometimes she would bend one leg in order to look behind and smooth her skirt, as if she feared that some crease might be spoiling the line of her skirt at the rear. Or perhaps she was simply adjusting the elastic of a recalcitrant pair of panties through the fabric covering them. It was growing dark, and the gradually fading light made her seem to me ever more solitary more isolated and more condemned to wait in vain. Her date would not arrive. She was standing in the middle of the pavement. She did not lean against the wall as those who wait usually do, so as not to get in the way of those passers-by who are not waiting, which is why she had trouble avoiding them. One man said something to her, and she responded angrily, threatened him with her voluminous bag. Suddenly she looked up 
at the third floor where I was standing on the balcony, and she seemed to fix her eyes on me for the first time. She peered at me as if she were nearsighted or were looking through grubby contact lenses. She screwed up her eyes a, a little to see better. It was, it seemed, me she was looking at. But I knew no one in Seville. More than that, it was the first time I had ever been to Seville on my honeymoon with my brand new wife lying ill on the bed behind me. I just hoped it was nothing serious. I heard a murmur coming from the bed, but I didn't turn around because it was a moan made in her sleep. One quickly learns to distinguish the sounds the person one sleeps with makes in their sleep. The woman had taken a few more steps, this time in my direction. She was crossing the street, dodging the cars, not bothering to look for traffic lights, as if she wanted to get closer quickly in order to find out, to get a better view of me on my balcony. She walked slowly, however, with difficulty, as if she were unaccustomed to wearing high heels, or as if her striking legs weren't used to them, or as if her handbag threw off her balance, or as if she were dizzy. She walked rather in the way that my wife had walked after being taken ill when she came into the room. I had helped her to undress and put her to bed. I had covered her up. The woman had just crossed the street now. She was closer, but still some way off, separated from the hotel by the ample esplanade that set it back from the traffic. She continued looking up at me, or at where I was, at the building in which I was staying. And then she made a gesture with her arm, a gesture that neither greeted nor beckoned. I mean, it wasn't the way one would beckon to a stranger. It was a gesture of appropriation and recognition, as if the person she had been waiting for, and as if her date was with me. It was as if, with that gesture of her arm finished off by a swift flourish of the finger, she wanted to grab hold of me and say, come here, or you're mine. At the same time, she shouted something that I couldn't hear, and from the movement of her lips, I understood only the first word, and that word was, hey, uttered with great indignation, as was the rest of the phrase that failed to reach my ears. She continued to advance. She smoothed the rear of her skirt more earnestly now, because it seemed that the person who would judge her appearance was there before her. The person she was waiting for could now appreciate the way her skirt fell. And then I did hear what she was saying. Hey! What are you doing up there? The shout was very audible now, and I could see the woman better. Perhaps she was older than 30. She still had her eyes screwed up, but they seemed light in color to me, gray or hazel. And she had full lips, a rather broad nose, her nostrils flaring vehemently out of anger. She must have spent a long time waiting, far longer than the time that had elapsed since I had picked her out. She stumbled as she walked. She tripped and fell to the ground, instantly dirtying her white skirt and losing one of her shoes. She struggled to her feet, as if she feared getting her foot dirty too. Now that her date had arrived, now that she needed to have clean feet just in case the man she had arranged to meet should see them. She managed to get her shoe back on without putting her foot on the ground. She brushed down her skirt and shouted, What are you doing up there? Why didn't you tell me you'd already gone up? I've been waiting for you here for an hour. As she said that, she repeated the same grasping gesture, a bare arm beating the air and the quick flourish of the fingers that accompanied it, as if she were saying, You're mine, or I'll kill you. 
as if with that gesture she could grab me and drag me towards her like a claw. This time she shouted something and she was so close I was afraid she might wake my wife. What's wrong? said my wife feebly. I turned round. She was sitting up in bed with frightened eyes, the eyes of a sick person who wakes and cannot see anything and doesn't yet know where she is or why she feels so confused. The light was off. At that moment, she was a sick woman. It's nothing. Go back to sleep, I said. But I didn't walk over to her to stroke her hair or calm her down, as I would have done in any other circumstances, because I couldn't leave the balcony or even take my eyes off that woman who was convinced she had arranged to meet me. Now she could see me clearly, and I was obviously the person with whom she had made an important date, the person who had caused her to suffer by making her wait, who had offended her with my prolonged absence. Didn't you notice I'd been waiting for you here for an hour? Why didn't you say something? She was yelling furiously, now standing outside my hotel beneath my balcony. Do you hear me? I'm going to kill you, she shouted. And again, she made the gesture with her arm and her fingers, the grasping gesture. What on earth's going on? asked my wife, again lying dazed on the bed. At that moment, I stepped back. I pulled the balcony shutters too, but not before seeing that the woman in the street with her enormous old-fashioned handbag and her stiletto heels and her strong legs and her stumbling walk was disappearing from my field of vision because she was entering the hotel, ready to come up and find me and meet me. I felt empty inside when I thought about what I could possibly say to my sick wife to explain the interruption that was about to take place. We were on our honeymoon, and on your honeymoon you really don't want the interference of a stranger. <laughs> Although I was not, I think, a stranger to the person now coming up the stairs. I felt empty inside, and I closed the balcony shutters. I prepared myself to open the door. That was On the Honeymoon by Javier Marias, performed by Ivan Hernandez. Getting married is always a big deal. So whenever I see someone on a reality show agree to marry a person they've never met, but have only spoken to through a wall, in front of millions of viewers no less, call me madcap, but I get nervous. I want to shout, do you know what you're doing, young foolish person named Mallory or Shane? And even people who haven't met through a wall on a TV show, but through more typical ways, still aren't immune to the effect of terrifying spoken lines like, with the power vested in me by the state, I now pronounce you, etc. Power and state, that is heavy. And even a little surreal. In Javier Maria's story, the strangeness of the woman on the street shouting up at the newlywed husband seems to mirror the thought many people have when they've just gotten married. Oh my God, I have a whole new life now. But then maybe a person shows up who says, not so fast. And maybe you even willed her there. Who knows, maybe you even arranged it through the power vested in you by your emotional state. When we return, what to do when an old friend starts a cult mere inches away from your recycling bin? You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide.
Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. The stories in this hour are all about marriage and the responsibility that comes with getting hitched. If you're enjoying the show and you feel you want to have and hold Selected Shorts forever, we'll meet you halfway. Subscribe to our podcast at SelectedShorts.org or on your favorite podcasting platform. You can feel free to brag to friends that you are in a committed relationship and we'll let everyone know what a fantastic listener you are and how much your support means. And though Selected Shorts offers an endlessly replenishing bounty of riches, I tell you what, if you commit to us today, we won't even make you sign a prenup. Our final story about the pluses and perils of partnership is by Duncan Birmingham. He's a filmmaker and TV writer with credits including Marin and Blunt Talk. His debut collection of short stories, The Cult in My Garage, came out in 2021. We're giving you the title story, and it reflects on one of the challenges in a marriage, your husband's old friends. In Birmingham's story, the husband is a bit of a good old boy, and so are a succession of crude pals. There is some suggestion of adult behavior, and there's an element of raunchiness. We think this surprisingly subtle story is worth it. It's performed by Michaela Watkins, an actor known for work on series including Casual, The Unicorn, and Search Party. She's also been featured in many films, including Brittany Runs a Marathon and Paint. And now, The Cult in My Garage by Duncan Birmingham. The Cult in My Garage. My husband warned me, his old college buddy, who was coming to stay for a couple days, was a real handful. Boy, I could tell you some stories, he chuckled. Like what? Well, he looked at me and we both realized he couldn't tell me these stories. (laughs) So I just refilled my coffee. I'd had my fair share of my husband's old friends over the years. They were called things like Sully and Gunner and Bobsled and had phlegmy laughs and wilting hair and beer guts threatening the top button of their golf pants. They'd sit in the kitchen nook for a marathon tequila sessions, reminiscing about smashing their car into this tree or doing blow at that show or after I'd gone to bed, sticking their dick into so-and-so. Middle management blowhards or salesmen with one passable suit in town for conventions or seminars in nearby Long Beach who wanted to see their bra. Each and every one ruffled my young son Jonah's hair and asked if he was getting any in school. I couldn't help but notice the pale line where they had twisted wedding bands off their fat fingers One even wet the guest bed. To my husband, they were fearless legends, master wits, stars of countless rip-warring anecdotes, usually culminated in property damage and public defecations. She's a bit of a wallflower back in school, he'd say by way of apology for me. And they would stifle a belch and just nod at me politely like, sure, 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 and compliment me on the lovely wallpaper or the drapes as if throwing a dog a bone. So 
My expectations weren't exactly dashed when Owen from Phoenix showed up with a duffel bag, a bottle of Cuervo, and proceeded to get my name wrong, and then barked for hours over the Weber grill about Jean-Claude Van Damme movies and college hockey with my husband. Over dinner, he scratched his graying stubble and was mercifully cryptic about his recent divorce and termination from his longtime sales job. He said he was ready for a big change in his life. Like he was saying something profound. <laughs> of course you are, my husband said. Who isn't? I mean, I didn't major in philosophy just to spend my whole life selling off brand soda to dollar store chains, he said in a moment of self-reflection that was quite rare at our dinner table. Of course not. You majored in philosophy to get that punani. <laughs> My husband laughed with his mouth full of undercooked hamburger, shot me a quick conciliatory look, and then laughed some more. For a split second, I thought I saw Owen give me a little pity smile, a look that said he knew my pain and exhaustion. But hey, we all had our parts to play in this crazy life. We all had our crosses to bear, etc. But then he started laughing too, with his mouth full of hot dog. And I realized the flickering kitchen bulb my husband still hasn't changed was playing tricks, or maybe it was the wine, but... I excused myself for bed and reminded them not to smoke weed inside or wake up Jonah with their war stories. In the morning, I noted to my husband that Owen had urinated a little bit on the toilet seat and left beer rings on the coffee table. Give him a chance, babe. Owen's the real deal. He kissed my cheek. He's kind of like the smartest guy I know. I nodded and watched him leave for work with an egg stain on his tie. My husband's friends never failed to shine a spotlight on all his shortcomings to me. I dropped Jonah off at his special school and was writing a copy for a new line of juicers in my office cranny when Owen said, knock, knock, and asked where he might find a screwdriver. At least he got my name right this time. As I was showing him the junk drawer, he thanked me for letting him stay in the garage, which was uh, news to me. <laughs> I told him as much and went back to work. Uh, I was under a deadline, but kept getting distracted watching him move things in and out of our garage, listening to him banging and sawing away. It's just till he gets on his feet. My husband picked up my favorite Chinese dumplings for dinner as a peace offering. He's had a tough couple of years. He just needs to get his mojo back. He is like such a smart guy. He could have his own podcast or something. <laughs> yeah, you said that already, I told him. If he's so smart, why can't he not dribble piss on the toilet seat? <laughs> I just wasn't in the mood. My husband had lost not an insubstantial amount of money a few years back investing it in another really smart friend's data mining firm. He's not even going to use the house. He says he's got everything he needs in the garage. True to his word, Owen kept to himself. When I pulled shut our drapes at night, I would see a little light on through the garage door window, and I would lie in my bed wondering what he did all day among all our old recycling bins and neglected power tools. 
Hold it. Where does he go to the bathroom? I asked one night, but my husband was dead asleep. I didn't see him again until I was returning from dropping Jonah at his tutors, and he was coming through the side door with a pasty young woman in a faded sack dress. I straightened up. One time, some old friends of my husband's had brought a sex worker home after the bars closed, and my husband and I heard them having sex on our new patio furniture. My husband insisted she wasn't a sex worker this while. Jonah was really still just a baby, but still, I'm far from prude, but I mean, who wants something like that happening on your own furniture, even if it's outside? And now I wasn't over the moon about it happening in my garage either. So I was preparing to not mince words when I noticed the way they were walking. He had his hand on her shoulder, but in a brotherly way and she was holding a flyer. This is Penny, he declared when he saw me. She lives in the brown unit at the end of the block with her mother, who's been sick. I didn't know what any of this had to do with me, but said hello anyway. She came inside for a cold soda. The Masi woman held up a can of blue soda to verify, a brand I'd never heard before, Okay, then. What else do you say? I went into the house to get to work, but instead spied from the corner window as they said goodbye in the driveway. It was all very chaste, maybe for my benefit, but then Penny gave him a smile. It seemed so genuine and turned and walked away, cupping the cheap soda like a votive candle. Hey, man's got to have friends, right? My husband said when I told him. He seemed tickled. Owen works fast, just like back in school, a regular Mr. Popular. What about our son, I said. He has enough issues. I don't want Jonah being around whatever's going on in there. Jonah! Jonah! Don't hang out in the garage for now, okay? My husband shouted in the direction of our son's room and gave me a happy now look. The next day, I saw more people. They came to the garage side door, all stacked brows and pinched shoulders. One or two looked familiar. They rapped unsurely on the door, slipped inside, and left an hour or two or three later with the same relieved smiles as that first girl, mouth blue and often cradling a soda. That afternoon, I was just about to give Jonah another warning to stay away from the garage when he uncrumpled a flyer he said he ripped off a telephone pole near his school. Isn't this our address? He asked. I nodded, like it most certainly was. I handed the same flyer to my husband that night as he was pulling a beer out of the fridge. Alone, depressed, isolated? Well, me too, he read the flyer aloud and looked up. Hey, isn't this our address? <laughs> I nodded like it most certainly was. Do we want lonely, depressed people coming and going here all day? I asked, don't we have enough already? Well, at least he's not dealing drugs like you thought before, and he did specify the garage in parentheses. My husband gave that last word just an extraneous syllable. He just needs a little more time to get back in the game. Let's cut him some slack. Some slack? When is he leaving? 
I can't just kick him out on his butt. It's, it's distracting. You know how much work I'm juggling. But I got you those noise cancellation headphones on our anniversary. Is this really the hill you want to die on? I'd read that phrase online, and I just always wanted to say it, but my husband just looked confused. He's a good egg. I told you, he practically saved that time on the jet skis, right? I told you about that. My husband cracked his beer and launched into the story, but I wasn't listening. The next day, I sipped my coffee and watched as more people arrived. By my second cup, they were lined up down the driveway like for a new blockbuster or charity turkey. I took a photo and texted it to my husband with a thumbs down emoji and then a turd emoji just to make my feelings crystal clear. <laughs> and then when I heard the noise, a low hum, really like a swarm of locusts descending through the air ducts, I held my breath and I listened. It was chanting, chanting in the middle of the day on a street like this. I wondered if our neighbors could hear all this craziness. I knocked on the garage door, but it was locked, and there was no answer. So fed up, I fished the clicker out of the little Jetta's visor, and I pressed the button, not caring a goddamn what I was interrupting. The chanting wound down, and it was quiet, except for the doors lurching open bit by bit, a rising curtain revealing dozens of them, more than I could count. There was Penny. I even recognized some neighbors, Don and Barbara from the Realtor Signs, the pothead who left the trash bins out all week, the bachelor with a perm and a hot tub. Not that I socialize much. They were sitting cross-legged or perched all over the garage's bric-a-brac like birds. They turned and squinted in my direction, shielding their eyes, faces shiny and dark, with sweat. I was prepared for Owen to be angry, defensive at the least, that I'd interrupted their little whatever the hell it was. But he opened his arms, revealing pit stains, and stepped forward to me with the most beautiful grin. I've been hoping for this day. That night, my husband was sulking. Whatever the hell Owen was up to, he was too busy to grill pork loins or get shit-faced at the driving range with him. Maybe he's trying to get his life back together, is all I said. <laughs> that week, I returned to the garage to listen to Owen chronicle turning his life around. He was growing out a beard, and it didn't look half bad. We all clasped cold blue sodas. He had liberated cases and cases of them from his old sales job before he got the axe. I hadn't noticed what a nice voice he had before, or maybe it was the acoustics in the garage. He sat mid-rung on an old ladder atop a high stack of plastic storage bins. We kept our bulky winter clothes and Christmas decorations. He referred to the garage as the place of his rebirth, <laughs> motioning to the inflated kiddie pool in the corner that he slept in. Occasionally during his talks, he would use something of ours to illustrate a point, like when he squeezed into the rollerblades I hadn't used in years and just skated around and around in circles or, or mounted uh, my husband's neglected exercise bike, just pedaling faster and faster and faster, but going nowhere. Other times he would noodle on the Casio keyboard we bought Jonah 
Or you just pick something up, an old paintball gun or a dirty Halloween wig or a box of Japanese porno mags that I didn't know existed and use them as a jumping off point for the day's monologue. I felt my chest tighten every time he passed the shelf where a duct-taped hat box hid my poetry spiral notebooks. Sometimes he trailed off and it seemed like he was just snooping, but then he would spin around clutching my yellowed wedding dress and hold it up to his chin and start talking about the futility of commitment in these uncertain times and how could I not be moved? There were days he would lecture about living off of scraps of the ignorant and the bourgeoisie zombie cows as he wagged a scolding finger in the direction of our house and just always catching my eye and giving a little shake of the head to say, not you though. And we all paid the utmost attention, just barely moving except to fan ourselves or wipe the sweat out of our eyes. His animated little talks, he begged us not to call them sermons, sometimes moved people to the point of passing out right there in the cement flooring. If someone sneezed too much or their phone went off, Owen would blast them with our leaf blower or toss a deflated basketball at their heads. <laughs> One time, Penny had the hiccups, and he put her over his knee and just swatted her bottom with our peeling ping-pong paddle until her pale face was flushed. She was just cured of her ailment. Bring fireball next time if you want, Owen said to me after a talk. Fireball is what a lot of my husband's old friends called him, but I could tell Owen didn't want him to come any more than I did. He wasn't always that bad. I said to fill the silence, feeling like I should defend him a little bit. Actually, he kind of was. Owen and I shared a look. And I realized that Rye's smile the first night at our dinner table wasn't too much wine or my imagination. I excused myself to start dinner, and he went to take a nap in our kiddie pool. I wore my cutest tops to his afternoon talks and found myself sweating through them as I nodded so vigorously that my neck ached. All the women in the garage wanted him, I suspected. Men, too. At night, I lay there next to my sleeping husband, wondering what may be happening in that inflated kiddie pool after dark. Pretty soon, I was completely ignoring my headlines and my deadlines. A copy of a new line of doggy chew toys and press releases for an updated home orthodontics treatment. I stopped answering all work calls, even though my freelancing brought in more than my husband would like to admit. I started bringing Jonah with me to the garage and was pleased to see during Owen's speeches he didn't fidget or talk back or sneak looks at his phones or pull his hair, which were problem areas that his teachers had complained about. I started letting him skip school. One day, there was a loud pop, like a cartoon assassination attempt. The few closest to Owen leapt up to shield him. Startled, we glanced around for the culprit. After much rummaging, Owen discovered one of our old mouse traps had been set off in the corner, and we gathered around to watch as he kneeled and pulled back the metal spring, and the gray animal that seconds ago was totally lifeless now twitched and bared its yellow teeth in Owen's hand. He held the creature high above his head for all the garage to see. If there were any disbelievers among us, 
<laughs> there weren't after that day. What the hell is this? My husband found one of Owen's blue cans of soda in Jonah's room. I explained that they were remnants of Owen's past life and beverage distribution in the Southwest. I didn't get into the significance. I wasn't sure. I really knew the significance. Something about us helping him deplete all his vestiges of his previous incarnation, sip by sip, can by can. Either way, it would be lost on my husband. And besides, I wasn't telling him how Jonah and I were spending all our time in the garage. He doesn't want to have a drink, won't play horse. I talked to him about making nachos and I texted him about watching the game the other day and he didn't even answer, my husband said. I don't tell him that Owens renounced all worldly possessions. Besides the stuff we own, I mean. <laughs> enough is enough. He was always an odd duck, my husband said. Time to put his ass on blast. We were in the garage and Owen was wearing one of my husband's old football helmets and talking about shielding yourself against cynicism and indifference when I glanced back and saw my husband standing among the crowd at the door, half hidden behind our plastic Christmas tree. I didn't hear his Chrysler pull into the driveway and wondered how long he'd been there listening, cross-armed and open-mouthed. No doubt he came home early to put Owen's ass on blast, only to find his garage full of perspiring strangers. I hoped he wouldn't make a scene, but when I looked back a moment later, he was gone. I braced myself for an earful from him that night, but instead, my husband ordered my favorite Chinese dumplings, enough for leftovers for days. He was adamant about us all watching a movie together and Jonah could pick. Jonah always picked stepbrothers, which is why my husband stopped letting him pick. But that night, we laughed so hard. <laughs> And we all know each other's favorite parts, and somehow that made it funnier. After Jonah went to bed, my husband gave me a foot rub as I lay on the couch. I've been thinking, he said. I'm just going to convert it into a little office with a real window. The garage, right? Some cool furniture? So you have your own space for work or just to get away and chill? Write your poetry? I smiled appreciatively. I thought to myself, the bit about my poetry is how I'll choose to remember him. Dan. Jenny. He said quietly, holding tightly onto the tops of my feet. He knew as well as I did, our garage would never be anything but a garage. The next day, Owen and I packed the Jetta, and I left a note on yellow stationery for my husband on the kitchen counter. A tear stain blotted the blue ink of my signature. In the postscript, I told him the refrigerator was stocked to the brim with beer, hamburger meat, and all the fixings for a cookout, and not to let it go to waste. Maybe Gunner or Sully or Bobsled, or whoever, would keep him company. They wouldn't have to keep the stories PG, and they could smoke weed in the house until sunrise. Joan and I packed light. Owen, of course, had nothing besides the clothes on his back and the last couple of cases of dead stock soda. He was worried about leaving his first followers, but I assured him true disciples would find us eventually. It'll be like their first test, I said, and I could tell he liked the sound of that. He squeezed my hand. Jonah was playing with the resurrected mouse that Owen had gifted him and barely glanced back as we pulled away, which I took as a good sign.
We would head to a new town far away, some place where no one would know us, and we could start again. As long as there were telephone poles to paper with flyers and a garage to preach our message. Maybe even a bungalow or a pool house, Owen said, stepping on the gas, eyes fixed on the horizon. Michaela Watkins performed The Cult in My Garage by Duncan Birmingham. When you marry someone, you become a strip of human flypaper to which all the people from your spouse's previous life adhere. Yes, I'm talking about those old pals, even the one in the t-shirt with the so-called provocative saying on it, even the one who can do that hilarious thing with his tongue, a piece of string, and a potato. But sometimes, shockingly, you don't want these people in your life. Instead, you want them to pack up their t-shirts and their string and their potato and go. But sorry, no can do, they're part of the whole marital package. And not only that, they provide you with a glimpse of your spouse that you haven't really wanted to deal with. Or, as in this story, they turn out to have another side to them. Yes, you've probably noticed that these stories aren't exactly advertisements for a lasting union. This episode of the show is not sponsored by the Something Borrowed, Something Blue, Online Discount Wedding Emporium, and One Hour Dental Clinic. No, but think about it all as a sort of stress test. If you listened, debated the character's decisions, and laughed about it all with your significant other, you're probably doing okay. And if you find yourself further from wedded bliss than you were an hour ago, well, I've got an amazing intergalactic reality game show I think you'd be perfect for. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Jennifer Nolson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. 